The world has gone insane. Cosplayers rule the conventions. Gamers dominate the tabletop and the internet. Sci-fi subjugates the movies and fantasy rules the bookstore with an iron fist. Only one group can bring order to this unruly mob. A team of uber geeks, masters of the nerdly arts, trained for decades in the hobby shops and basements of the nation. Mobilized by the secret masters, they are the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Hello, operatives, and welcome to the Department of Nerdly Affairs. I'm your host, Rob Patterson, here with my co-host, Don Chisholm. Hey. And today we have a very special guest. Science fiction author Gary Gibson has dropped by to tell us about his work and to talk about his latest projects. Welcome to the show, Gary. Hi there. Um, so why don't we start out, Gary, by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Tell, tell our audience who might not be familiar with you yet, who are you? Okay, um... As, as you say, I'm a science fiction author. I come from Glasgow in Scotland. I've been writing professionally since about full-time, more or less, since about 2004. And before that, I'd written a few short stories and so forth. And I've been putting out about a book a year over the past decade and a bit. And I've just got a new book out called Survival Game. That's a sequel to a previous book that was out about two years ago. That's Pretty much it. Oh, okay. Well, that, that sounds great. And we'll talk about survival game, and we'll talk about your books in a few minutes. But first, so how did you get into writing, Gary? Like, how did you fall into this horrible trap? You know, that's a good question. I think it was just boredom. I was just sitting around as a child at, in the middle of nowhere in Scotland with really not very much to do. Three mm-hmm. channels of television. Uh, I'd read the same dozen Marvel comics about a hundred times each. There's just okay. there's a typewriter and that I guess drew my attention. I think it was a wee bit in the blood as well because um my folks mm-hmm. were both in a sense writers. They were both journalists. My dad was a journalist for about half a century. Uh, right. my mother at the time was doing articles for a local newspaper. My brother wound up doing some journalism so I never really did any journalism, but it's, uh, maybe it's not so surprising I ended up doing some kind of writing. I have a feeling there's a few books around your house, probably. <laughs> there were quite a few books around the house. Actually, here's an odd question. What age did you start reading? Do you actually know? I don't really remember. I just remember being... T- it's the same story that everyone's got. You were taken to the library as a child, and you mm. found some books, and maybe you found the science fiction books first. I don't know, maybe seven, six? I couldn't really tell you. Are we talked to some people who actually started reading like very early i know don don when did you start reading um i don't remember ever not being able to read (laughs) okay well yeah there we go but i think most people who are writers or creative types are just naturally attracted to books and reading very early on Mm. but okay so obviously um you have an interest in science fiction so what was your first science fiction book or fantasy book what really got you into the genre do you remember well, you know, I actually probably kind of started out reading a lot of Marvel comics. It was really that kind of thing, the, the, the Fantastic Four, the Spider-Man. But mm. when it comes to the pure science fiction, it's a really generic story. Again, it's back to the library. I, mm. found, I found the Robert Heinlein, I found the Arthur C. Clarke, I found the Isaac mm. Asimov books, and I read them. 
And it's that straightforward. I got into right. them and then I looked for anything that was like it. I don't think I even knew who the writers were at first. It took me a wee while to realize that there were different people writing the stories. Right. But when it finally clicked, then I went and I got them and I thought, okay, there's more bits out there. I can go and find it. The one, the one thing I find kind of interesting is that you mentioned um, at a young age getting into like the Marvel comics. Oh, yeah. And to me, that seems weird because when I was, was a young kid, uh, I always loved comics, but I wasn't a big superhero fan. But there was a lot of stuff that came out of, say, like France and the UK that I was actually a big fan of. Well, that's a weird thing for me. It's slightly the reverse for me. I was kind of drawn to comics because America and the United States was like this faraway land that I had no direct proof actually existed. <laughs> any, in any place other than in a comic book page or on the television. And the other thing that attract me, attracted me to the Marvel comics was it was supposed to be about really smart people who also happened to have superpowers, or so I read it. So mm-hmm. I, I thought that that somehow kind of drew me in some kind of way. But and maybe also because I had an older brother who also mm-hmm. bought comics and he was buying comics before me. So I probably found some of them and... Maybe I found a liking for the Marvel Comics more. Well, there was Marvel Comics UK. I, they were publishing them there as well as in North America. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's, um, that's the ones I read. They were these black and white reprints on really cheap newsprint. They were an absolute fraction of the mm-hmm. cost of the, um, the, the real thing. Right. And so I just basically bought a truckload of them. Wow. Well, they're cheap, so why not? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So... That's interesting that they reprinted them in black and white. I would have thought that they would print them in color there as well. That's weird. Huh. Well, it's just cheap. They just start, they would just turn them out um, yep. vast in vast quantities. I, I, I had boxes of these mm-hmm. things for quite a long time before I eventually got sick of them and, and threw them out. But not worth anything. Right, anyway, right. Not like the originals. Them, those you would want to keep. But these, they were just absolutely just not worth a penny. Well, that's kind of the... Uh... Like uh, the UK stuff is printed. They're like what we'd consider a little tiny newspaper kind of thing. Yeah, they're, they're printed on cheap newsprint. Yeah, that's interesting. So, well, similar to what the Japanese do, right? Yeah, except they do the phone book looking ones. See, it's probably the economics of it. You automatically yeah. have a smaller audience in the United Kingdom than you would mm-hmm. in, the, um, in the United States, say, with a much larger population. So when you scale it right. up, it becomes relatively cheaper to produce fairly glossy, full-color comics. Yeah. Mm. Whereas mm. maybe it wasn't that easy in the United Kingdom. No, makes Because sense. it wasn't such a sizable audience automatically. All right, so let's continue on the track. So <laughs> so what um, kind of inspired you then to become a writer? Like, you'd obviously read lots of science fiction, but was there something that kind of set you off and made you think, okay, I want to do this myself? Honestly, I think just... There, there was an element of just boredom about it, but I really think it's just that the world of science fiction felt like colour, where real life felt a bit kind of grey and black and white by comparison. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only way I can think of that makes sense to me to describe it as. Right. It's escapism, perhaps. Beyond that, you know, it's like... A, Honestly, a lot of stuff before about the age of 20, it's just vague to me. I have not very clear memory of it. Right. <laughs> it's all a bit distant and vague and, and, and woolly. Possibly it's all manufactured and I was actually built when I was 22 and I woke up one day. I, I don't know. 
Okay, well, you know, that happens sometimes. <laughs> Possibly. That happens sometimes. Okay, so, all right. So, so tell us about your first book. It's like, how did that come about? The writing of them? Yes. Well, basically, you have to go back a wee bit before that. On some level, most writers are fundamentally creative people who realize one day that they are fundamentally creative people. It's the same mm. for artists, for musicians. There's maybe people around who say, oh, you've got to get a proper job. You have to do this. You have to do that. And at some point, some part of you, if you are sufficiently motivated, thinks, well, that's, you know, I want to go and do this thing. So I had what you might call a specific moment of uh, clarity where I thought, this is what I should be doing. Right. So um, it really kind of goes back a bit because, like, uh, back when I, I started writing when I was 14 years old, and then I kind of stopped because I wasn't really good enough yet. I didn't know how to put the words together properly. Right, uh, right. Then I discovered music and decided for about the next six years I was actually going to be a guitarist. Oh, awesome. And then I discovered the fundamental truth of music, which is that most musicians are actually complete idiots. <laughs> <laughs> with, very, okay. with very few qualities about them that you would want to associate with any human being. Right. And it just got to a point where I thought, this is a waste of time in about my mid-twenties, I'm not going to do this anymore. And I just stopped doing it, literally overnight. And I thought, what do I want to do? And I thought, what is the creative act I can do that I want to do where I don't have the opinion of a complete moron to deal with? Right. And I, and I can create it, and I can send it to someone, and they can either say, no, I don't want this, or they can say, oh, I like this, here's some money. Uh, so I thought, I can do that with writing. So I went straight back to writing, and I started writing. This is about the very late 80s. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I immediately, like within 24 hours, 48 hours, submitted a first short story and jumped straight back into it that way. Mm. And, it, and that was it, really. I was, I was set. And there were times when over the next like, 10, 15 years, I was only really writing the very occasional short story. I didn't send mm-hmm. out much stuff because I didn't have that much confidence in what I was doing, but I made a few sales right. over the years. Mm-hmm. And I, I then realized another fundamental truth. I had another epiphany, which is if you can sell a short story and get paid for it, then you can write a 100,000-word novel and maybe get paid for it. Right. Mm. So it was like from one step to another, I tried to find a, a way to express myself creatively. I wasn't thinking mm-hmm. consciously. I will now find a way to express myself creatively. It's just like an urge. It's not right. necessarily a conscious thing. It's just a drive to do something. And you go and you do that thing. Right. If that makes hmm. sense. No, that does make sense. That does make sense. Yeah. yeah and that's, that's something that a lot of people who do any kind of creative thing, that it seems to be an impulse. You just can't help but make something. It's fundamental to who you are. It, yeah. Is, it, yeah. it, it defines who you are. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I can. Thinking about the people at my uh, regular job, and how they don't do that, I can totally see that it's it's got to be like a mutation or something that some people are born with. Well, some people say it's a mental illness <laughs> that you know writers are just schizophrenics who put their who put their alternate personalities on paper instead of uh, in their head. Hmm. I but, personally, I per- I personally think writers are actually fairly quiet people with fairly rich mm-hmm. inner lives 
that they dare not talk openly about and mm -hmm. find ways to let some of it leak out through stories because, again, they have a mm. urge. That makes sense, actually. Yeah, it does, and it kind of um, as a as an odd question coming from that. Do you ever find that you have an idea for for a story or or an event in a story or a character, but it's so antithetical to who you are as a person, you just can't bring yourself to write it? Well, I don't know if, if I quite put it that way, but I've sometimes come up with ideas and thought, no, I can't get away with that. <laughs> um, I read this going to hound me to the ends of the air for that. If I can't, if I, I can't think of anything specifically, but I have sometimes slightly self-censored. But actually, I used to do it, but I do it less now because generally when I don't self-censor so much, the response tends to be a bit better when mm. I actually mm. write it. So do you let uh, things like uh, politics or religion or things like that creep into your work, or do you try to keep them out of it? No, I, I, they, they creep in there. They do creep in there. But I mean, I noticed that Stealing Light, for example, which I've read, I noticed that there's an el definite an element of religion in that book. There's actually quite a bit of it. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd, um, it's, it's hard to, to, to put it in a... It's not like I deliberately sat down and thought, I will incorporate my views on religion here. It's more mm -hmm. that I had general views that couldn't help but come across uh, as, right. I, as I wrote my stories. It was in terms of politics... I could not help but have a go at Robert Heinlein. Um, right. I read him when I was a kid. I thought he was great when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Then I came back to him as an adult, and I was horrified. <laughs> horrified by what I was reading. I thought, what is this bilge? Yeah. This terrible, <laughs> terrible writing and these terrible, right. terrible ideas. And what did I ever see in this? And then you turn to the internet and it's filled with guys say, oh, Robert Heinlein, he's the best. Everyone should read him. And I, I just feel like I'm caught in the Twilight Zone. Why are you people <laughs> saying this? What, have you even read him since you were 10? So Probably not. Probably not. So I thought, I had this society. As you mentioned in Stealing Light, that's the first thing, thing that came to mind too. I had a whole society mm -hmm. reflected the Heinleinian. I think Starship Troopers. Right. Funny thing about Starship Troopers is it's a famous book, but I only just got round to reading it literally for mm -hmm. the first time about uh, six months ago. It was cheap okay. on Kindle, and I thought, fine, I'll read it. I'll get it out of the way just so mm -hmm. I know. And it is, frankly, a work of supreme fascism, exactly as I expected. <laughs> mm -hmm. But I, oh, yeah. I knew enough about Heinlein and being involved in enough, in, in enough conversations about Heinlein online and in real life and read enough of his other material to have some pretty good handles on what he was about in terms of his politics. And his idea basically was um, in the setting of Starship Troopers, you don't get to vote unless you're prepared to fight for your society. Mm -hmm. But the fundamental flaw with that is that mm -hmm. it means in order to vote, you have to find somebody to fight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. What if there's nobody to fight? Well, mm. if you're in some future space opera, what it happens is everybody else gangs up in you and forces you to live in the most faraway places possible so you don't keep trying to kill them. And mm. then when they run out of somebody to try and kill so they have a reason to give each other the power to vote, they end up killing each other. So to me, that was kind of my comment a wee bit on Heinlein. I just, I did have some views I wanted to express. 
Mm. Some, sometimes I see things which are kind of closely held beliefs in terms of maybe it's Heinlein, maybe it's somebody else, and I feel this need to basically stick a knife in it a little bit. Okay. Yes. Oh, I was just going to say that, that's, uh, that makes sense because the, the, the guys in, uh, in the Stealing Light were essentially the way you get into elected position is you kill one of the guys in a duel. Yes. As that's them. Mm. That's them. And, and it's a terrible way to run a society. It's a worse <laughs> way to run a society. And that's, yes, why that's why they're shoved off into the boondocks. That's why they're forced <laughs> to live somewhere other than where they originally wanted to be because nobody would want them around. And it's their own fault for being crazy. <laughs> okay. Because, yeah, I noticed that in the book, that those guys sort of came up. They kind of came a little bit out of nowhere, and I was thinking, man, that's harsh, but now I know where that comes from, and that's hilarious. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. They, they were called Freeholders because I'd read Farnham's Freehold by reread Robert Heinlein's book, Farnham's Freehold, which mm. is, again, a work of astonishing racism. And um, mm-hmm. I thought, I cannot let this pass. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just want to stab this and jump on it and say, die, die. Yeah, I, I, right. I was basically burying my childhood love for Heinlein deep. <laughs> I was mm-hmm. digging a deep hole and throwing it in there and saying, bye-bye. Go, go away, right. Heinlein. Had enough of you. Stay where you are. Don't oh, come back. Right. You don't usually hear that very often. <laughs> no, but it makes sense. It does, it does make sense. Mm-hmm. That's true. Heinlein is the quintessential conservative Republican. Yeah. He really was. Um, I can literally see him saying, you take my guns when you pry them from my cold, mm-hmm. dead hands. Yeah. He's that kind of guy. Yeah. Um, but then again, a lot of American science fiction writers were conservatives. So that's not entirely a surprise. Yeah. Um, it's one of those things you would think that more of them would be liberals. But overall, from what I've noted, most of the classic, at least the classic guys, <clears throat> mostly tended to be conservatives. They mostly tended to be middle-class, white, conservative males, and they were very, very traditional. Yeah. That actually surprised me, both mm. growing up reading science fiction as I came to realize it and becoming a writer, because at the same time that I was reading very obvious names like Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov mm-hmm. and um, Heinlein, it, it, it was the 70s going into the 80s. Um, I, I was also reading a lot of New Wave. And that's mm. where I really came into contact with the British side of things. Uh, Brian Aldiss, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Murcock, and on the American side, you got Helen Ellison and Norman Spinrad and writers like that. Mm. Right, yeah. Writers who are much more experimental and cutting edge, and, and, and that drew me as well. And G.G. Barrett back again on the British side. But in my head, I always associated science fiction with a kind of a a more liberal state of mind, a more mm. open kind of mind. To me, it was about open-mindedness. It was about exploring the nature of things around us. The idea that the people who created it could be that reactionary came as a big shock to me. It really did. Mm. Mm. I guess it really shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, Heinlein and the others were still the products of a society that was coming out of an agrarian existence, especially middle America. Um, whereas the, most of the authors you cite are very much urban authors. They're, they're people who have grown up in an urban, developed urban rural society. Uh, sorry. They're people who have grown up in a developed urban society. 
And so they have a very different view of things than the generation of writers that came before them. I think maybe it's also that back in Europe and in Britain, writers and society in general tended to have a slightly more pessimistic view of things. Mm. Whereas the American view, in, in a very general sense, tended to be a bit more overly optimistic. Right. Actually, well, that's something I want to ask you about. I've noticed that British science fiction in general tends to be a little more gritty. It tends to be a little more pessimistic. Mm -hmm. Is there a special reason for that? Honestly, I don't know. I think it's just something that's so deep inside the psyche of both writers and people on this on on that side of the Atlantic that um, it's it's hard to dig up and analyze directly. I'm sure there's a reason. I, I don't know if I can necessarily identify it off the cuff. Yeah, that's just something I know, because I could even feel that with your science fiction. I could feel that it has a little more of a grittiness to it that you generally won't see in American stuff. Yeah, Maybe one reason is that um, the British in particular have experienced being an empire and losing the empire. Mm. But maybe somewhere like the USA hasn't necessarily experienced that yet entirely. Mm, true. So there is that difference of historical perspective, and maybe that plays into it. Yeah, definitely. I, I mean, also the Americans, of course, have the advantage of not having been, you know, bombed by the Germans during World War II, for example, yeah. and so they haven't had that experience. Whereas the British, of course, have. Um, hmm. Yeah. Do you actually? Here's an odd question. Just throw this out there. Do you think that weather plays a role in it as well? I mean, the. You know, the weather in the UK, and especially from Scotland, from what little I know of it, I confess I haven't been there, I under, as I understand, is a little more, um, you get a little more rain than we do. <laughs> Quite a lot more rain. <laughs> yeah, it's a Quite little, a little more, more rain. It's a little more bleak than it is here. And so, at least in the, in the north. And so I wonder how much that actually creeps into, like, uh, writer's work and creeps into, like, uh, the way you perceive the world. Um, I know, for example, just to continue for a moment, that Canadian writers tend to also have a slightly different perspective than American writers. Our writing also tends to be a little more grounded and a little more, um, I don't want to use the word gritty, but gritty is the best word I can come up with, mm. than American stuff. There tends to be a little more of a social edge to it and a little more awareness of the environment. Whereas Americans tend to write more, it seems, for the plot and ideas and just kind of a happy fantasy world like you'd see out of a Hollywood movie. Mm -hmm. So, and I wonder if the weather has something to do with that. I'm sure it probably does, but I don't know how. Mm. Honestly, I think um, it's really more about historical perspective back to that. I've never even thought about the weather connection, I must admit. But I, mm -hmm. I do think that you can break things down even further in, in terms of reasonable characteristics. I mean... British SF mm -hmm. is distinct from American science fiction. Scottish science fiction, I would say, is distinct from English science fiction. And then again, perhaps French or German science fiction would be would be different again. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. So how? Yes. So, sorry. So how is Scottish science fiction different than English science fiction? I'm really curious. I have thought about that sometimes, and I would say that there is possibly a greater degree of cynicism towards authority. <laughs> mm. I would say that's pretty fundamental towards it. Uh, a desire to um, not accept things as they appear to be. Mm. I think the prime example for me is probably Ian Banks, 
mm-hmm. who of course wrote the culture series of, of, of science fiction novels. Right, as, yes. As well as any number of, of non-science fiction novels. Yes. And, and I think that's very fundamentally an expression there of, of, of the Scottish outlook, which is basically, I think, anti-authoritarian. Hmm. That's interesting. But in the culture books, isn't humanity basically ruled by like these sentient AIs that um, are basically just like our nannies, basically? Like, isn't it a very authoritarian environment? Not really, no. It's more like an environment where you get to do exactly what you want in the most liberal, communist possible paradise. Right. Okay. I've only read one of his books, so I so, so maybe I got the wrong impression. But okay. Hmm. Interesting. Um, and so you think that British work tends to be less cynical than in Scottish work? Perhaps maybe Brit- English science fiction is a little more accepting of the status quo. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I do. I've, I've noticed, too, that a lot of uh, the British stuff tends to be more stoic. Mm. That even if the whole universe is going to hell in a handbasket, a lot of the characters are like, well, we'll tough it out as best we can and take our chances. Well, that's a good example. I mean, a good example of that kind of thing would be John Winton, mm-hmm. who wrote um, any number of books like David Trippett's. It's kind of like yes. a, a cozy apocalypse. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Yeah, okay, there's there's monsters invading, eating, everybody's dying, but you've got a nice comfortable cottage, you can have a nice cup of tea, put on a record <laughs> mm-hmm. player, listen to some classical music, pass the time, Yep. go out and kill yep. something with a shotgun for a couple of hours, come back home and have your tea. Yep. Which is yep. a peculiarly English way of saying things. <laughs> it is. It is. I never thought about that, but that's exactly right, yeah. That, that would make a good blurb for the back of the book. <laughs> The coziest apocalypse ever. Yeah. All right. So, so okay. So let's bring this back around to your work then. So, okay. So, what was the first book you published? My first book that came out was Angel Stations. That came out from Tor Books in two thousand and four. Mm, okay. And so, what's Angel Station about? Do you know? I can't bloody tell you. I cannot remember. <laughs> I have a vague memory of it, but if I tried to sum it up, it wouldn't make any sense. Basically, it's like 10 novel ideas shoved into one book, which is one reason why it's so long. Hmm. Right. Everything I've thought up for the past 15 years got crammed into that one book. Well, you don't know if you're going to have another chance, right? Hmm. So you want to take advantage of that, that one moment. I chucked everything in. It's a science fiction equivalent of stew, where everything that's left in the fridge, you chuck it in, mix it up, See what you get. Right. They had, okay. had a slightly weird origin because um, about 10 years before, I tried mm-hmm. to write a novel, a novel for the first time, and it was set in the same universe. Right. And that was me trying to figure out how to write a novel. It's a classic first novel that will never get published. Right. Mm-hmm. And then I tried to sum it up, to, to, to tell it to myself in just a few words, what is a story about? Because I was never very good at summarizing things. And mm-hmm. then I basically wrote a fictionalized plot. And I thought, maybe I could sell this. And then I sold the outline to Interzone magazine and got paid for it. Even mm. though it was really just a lightly fictionalized outline of an unpublished novel. Mm. And then I had that idea still sitting in my head when 2004 rolled around. And I thought... I can put that in, and I've got this other idea over here. I'll put that in as well. 
I think also partly the reason it's hard for me to describe it to you is that I'm very much one of those people who when they finish something, they stop thinking about it completely. Right, yeah. It's just gone. I yep. just don't think about it. I know I'm not alone in this. I remember I was reading, uh, there's a writer, a very much in mark called John Varley, mm-hmm. and he had a book out called Steel Beach. And that mm-hmm. was part of yes. a series of books called, called a series of books called I think the Seven Worlds and Nine Worlds series, something like that. And he mentions mm-hmm. in the introduction, I think, to Steel Beats. Well, it's been ten years since I wrote a book in this series, and I don't really remember that many details of the previous books. And I'm not going to go back and reread them. So if there's any inconsistencies, ignore it. Just deal with it. Okay. Just deal with it. And, and I understand yeah. that because when I finished a book, I have spent more than a year with that thing. I am, mm. tr- as much as I'm happy to have produced it, as good as it is to see it in front of me, I am mm-hmm. sick of it. I yep. never want to look at its pages again, or at least not for a good long while. So right. it's out of my head. I'm thinking about the next thing. Right. That I, makes sense. I just don't go back. I just very rarely go back. Right. So, yeah, uh, just in case you're wondering, it, here's the blurb. Aeons ago, a super scientific culture known as angels had left incomprehensible relics all over the galaxy. Among these phenomena were the stations, where human spacecraft could jump instantly from one part of the galaxy to the other, and from them, the brilliant angel technology could be explored and exploited. One of these stations orbited the planet Caspar, where the only known, other known sentient species outside Earth had been meticulously allowed to continue evolving on its own world of primitive ignorance. But suddenly, Caspar's mysterious citadel had become the vital key to repelling the fast-approaching threat. At what cost, though, to its native inhabitants and to the human residents of the orbiting angel station? There's your blurb. That reminds me of a few things, and it does remind me of my curtain thinking. It's really basically eight stories shoved into one. Each, one right. each separate narrative strand is basically a separate idea that somehow got woven together. I mean, on one level, it's about an alien priest... Mm-hmm. who is commanded by his own god to commit a heresy against that god. That's one mm-hmm. story. On another, it's about ancient technology that can protect a world that has sentient life. On another, it's about a guy trying to who can basically see a little bit into the future, trying to avoid his own destiny. Mm-hmm. It's a whole bunch of stories all kind of tied in together. So in a way, there is no one single clear strand. Right. It's more that a bunch of different stories come together to form this kind of meta-narrative. Right. Hmm. Which is okay. either a, a complex and meaningful meta-narrative or a, do- or a dog's breakfast, depending right. on how, whether or not you happen to, to enjoy the book. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Hmm. Um, it, that's interesting. Okay. Now, when you, when you wrote it, is the reason it's multiple narratives because you were actually writing a whole bunch of short stories that you really just tied together or, and that was easier than writing a full novel or was, or did you actually set out to do that? I don't think I clearly set out to do anything, but just write a book. Right. I think it's also partly that at that stage, I didn't necessarily plot things out as carefully as I did later books. By the time I got to stealing Night, my third book, I planned mm-hmm things out much more meticulously, whereas books like Angel Stations and the book that followed Against Gravity were much more organic. I was basically mm-hmm. just seeing where the story took me, which is partly maybe why all these different story strands came in together and tied together in a way. Right. Hmm. That makes sense. 
So you're definitely a plotter then. You actually, as a writer, like to plot everything out? I discovered I was a plotter by the time I wrote my third book. Okay. I discovered that I preferred having a strong idea of what was going to happen before it happened rather than finding out for the writing. Right. Now, are you one of those writers that you write out your plot outline, then you write some of the book, then you look back and say, this plot outline doesn't work anymore and just completely revise it? Partly. I, I, I do a complete detailed plot outline. Then I start right. writing, and if it starts to deviate too far from the plot outline, then I go back and revise a plot outline first, and then I revise a book. Hmm. Mm. That makes sense. But I do find more increasingly these days that my books and my, my original plot outline is pretty close to the finished article in most cases. Right. Well, how detailed are your plot outlines? Do you write something that's almost as long as the book, or do you write something that's just a few pages? Um, usually quite long. I think when I did Stealing Light, I did something like a 30,000-word outline is what it became oh, in the oh. end. I wanted everything nailed down specifically, page by page, exactly what was going to happen, where and when. And mm. I would stop every 40 or 50 pages and adjust that once I knew what was and what wasn't working. Right. So it is a, it's a very complex document in its way. But again, I refined that through practice. And after another four or five books, I'd got that 30,000 words down to maybe six to 10,000 words. Right. But I really enjoy that process because it allows me to identify specific plot points where I can turn the story around or surprise a reader or, 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 mm -hmm. or develop things. I, I know some people don't like to plot things too densely because they feel that the, the story is already told. But mm -hmm. to me, it's not like that at all. I, I, I look forward to getting to that point where the big surprise happens. Hmm. For me, that's part that of the pleasure, knowing that that moment is coming. Huh. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, and so you don't feel at all that it uh, detracts from some of the spontaneity of your work? Not at all. Huh. I don't believe in spontaneity. I don't think it exists. I think um, um, it just seems to me a more solid and professional mm -hmm. approach to writing, to plan it out, to know what you're doing. Mm. Yeah, to have a clear outline. Mm. Now, do you use uh, just a regular word processor for this, or are you one of those people that uses a spreadsheet for it? Uh, really, it's, it's just a text document. I tell the story to myself. It's almost like right. a, a movie treatment. Oh. Mm. It's, it's broken down by chapter. I'm just literally just writing out the story as it occurs to me, going back over it and revising. I'll maybe have a second document open where I'm just writing out rough ideas. It's just... Literally, any, it's almost like stream of consciousness. I just write down anything that comes to mind, no matter how stupid or confusing mm. it seems, because sometimes you find gold in there. Mm, and right, then that, right. that gets refined into the main document once I find ideas that work. Because the more right. you come up with ideas, the more you just write down whatever comes to mind, the more your the creative part of your brain starts churning over thoughts and pulling pull, and, and, and connecting more of your consciousness and coming up with some cool stuff. And that can just feed into the um, that can feed into the main document where you, you're kind of refining all this kind of crude oil down into something very very yeah very refined and very right, structured yeah. and very delicate. Okay, so obviously Scrivener is your uh, tool of choice for this. Yes. 
Um, and it sounds like it suits you very well because that's exactly what Scrivener is designed to do. Yes. Um, have, you, have you found you have any other like weird habits that help you as a writer that like that you've picked up? Absolutely. In that, I am a very boring writer in that respect. Mm. You don't stand on your head or anything like that to come up with ideas? Uh, I could try it. <laughs> I don't. I don't suggest it. I don't suggest it. I'm very boring that way. I sit down. I write. I think it's just basic Scottish pragmatism. You don't fuck mm. around. You sit down. You do your job, and you get it done, and you finish it. Right. Hmm. And now what about? So, sorry. What about scheduling? I mean, do you have a certain time of day you write, for example, or do you have a certain like word count per day? No, my time of day that I write is determined by when I can face it. Mm. I am not a morning person. I know I, I, I hate that some people, they get up at the, the crack of dawn and they write 4,000 words mm. by breakfast. I can mm. barely speak my own name by the time the day rolls around. <laughs> right. By early afternoon, after a little coffee and some food, I can just about start thinking about story ideas. I can start thinking about fiction. It's when I actually wake up. I think it's just like one of those... I don't know what they call it, a diurnal cycle, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's, yeah. that's just when I come awake. I actually write often quite well late at night. I used to write a lot, say, between mm-hmm. like 8 in the evening and 3 in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. That worked very well for me, actually. But you use the past tense when you say that. Has that changed? Uh, a little bit. It's shifted a bit. Now I tend to write in the afternoons just because it's more convenient, really. Mm. Right. Okay, I can see that. Well, plus, we're getting older, of course, too. So uh, it becomes harder to stay up to 3 a.m. writing after a certain point. After a point. Slightly less fun. So slightly less fun, exactly. <laughs> or at least you, it feels less fun the next day. It might be okay the, the, that night, but not the next day. Indeed. So yeah. well, what's a Scrivener? Oh, sorry. Scrivener is an amazing program for writing. And for organizing your writing and ideas and such, um, it's probably one of the best author tools ever created. Oh, okay. If you go to, I believe it's literatureandlatte.com, or you can just put in Scrivener into uh, Google, and uh, it'll take you there and you can check it out. It has like a one-month free trial if you're curious, or anyone listening is curious. Mm. And I know I sound like I'm pitching it, but... (laughs) I am, actually, because Scrivener is perhaps one of the greatest programs ever invented by mankind, at least for a writer. Wow. I am a huge fanboy for Scrivener. I, See, there we go. I absolutely love it. I cannot, it's just, it changed my writing completely. Before I had Scrivener, if I was going to write, I had to use a knocked-off copy of Microsoft Word, and um, it was not easy because you'd have to scroll through the document and try and find different points in this story, and maybe you had to keep notes in some separate program, and you were switching around between things, and it was all terribly unwieldy. Microsoft Word and programs like that were made for writing business letters much more than they were for writing novels. Mm. Mm-hmm. And yes. But with Scrivener, it kind of threw away the basic ethos in Microsoft Word, which says what you see is what you get. Microsoft Word was designed to simulate the appearance of an actual printed page. Mm. Scrivener out the window. It gives you an almost software development-like environment where you have a series yes. of windows which contain different bits of text which are personal and relevant to the main window in which you're working. And you 
have a high degree of um, being able to read these things about and change them and shift them around the screen so everything is exactly the way you want it. So it's more, much more of a development area for writers than, than something like Microsoft Word, which is not a fit tool for that purpose. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Huh. And I think Gary's getting paid by Scrivener <laughs> from the sounds of it. I take the money they gave it to me, but I'm happy to <laughs> eulogize him in the meantime. Uh, yeah, I understand. I, I eulogize uh, Scrivener to everyone I meet who's involved with writing, especially oddly of grad students. I've had a lot of graduate students that you doing their like graduate thesis, for example, or their PhD. And I've had them thank me later on because I've said, you need to use Scrivener for organizing your research. And it's perfect for them. It really is. I've, I've, so heard, I recommend I've heard lawyers Sorry. use it as well. I've heard all kinds of people use it for organizing highly complex data and trying to figure out how it all relates together. Mm, it's an amazing program for that. You guys make me feel old. I still use like paper. Oh, okay. Well, anyway, we'll pretend you didn't say that. But, well, here, if it works for you, man, it's okay. It's okay. But if you were writing some, like, long document, Scrivener's probably a really good choice. At least if it's got multiple parts to it and mm -hmm. needs organization, then it's probably a good idea. Huh. I definitely wouldn't write anything longer than a short story without Scrivener. It's, it's an amazing tool for just organizing your ideas and thoughts and writing. Wow. And it also compiles itself to ebook. So you can just literally, once you're done, you just tell it, okay, this is where my file is. This is what I need turned mm. into an ebook. Here's the cover. Bang, and it produces the ebook file for you. Mm. And then you just upload it to Amazon or wherever. Wow. I've done it myself. It's very good for developing ebook files. You can get some very professional clean results from it. Mm. All right, so let's move on then um, on to uh, talk about more of your. So we've covered the first two books then. Um, Angel Stations and Against Gravity. So what came after that? Stealing Light was a third book. I, I had back pain and I had to quit my day job. And I was basically crawling around my flat on hands and knees for six months because I couldn't stand up. Oh, wow. And I was on extremely purple painkillers. I was also on substantial quantities of diazepam from my doctor and a bunch of other stuff. I had no idea I had the street value. Okay. Um, <laughs> Because I, I was just completely unaware of such things. But, you know, um, it was freezing cold. I lost my job. My my heating system exploded. Oh, uh, requiring mm. thousands of pounds of repair. My money was running out. And I didn't mind at all. <laughs> I didn't mind at all because everything was just kind of nice and golden. I was floating <laughs> along. Everything's fine when I'm writing this book and it's getting weirder. I've got headless zombie assassins. And I, 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 I almost want, I was tempted briefly, just briefly to thank the drug manufacturers <laughs> in the acknowledgement of that book for their input in the creation of this work, you know? Right. <laughs> Although it's interesting, actually, because you know, I was re-listening to it and I noticed there are a lot of references in that book to neurochemicals. Yeah, that would make sense. You're constantly referring to, to Dakota having uh, like Dakota having neurochemical rushes and dopamine and things uh, things like that. You're constantly referring to that. Huh. Hmm. Go back and look. There's actually lots of references to that, and knowing that that you were actually have experiencing that at the time, it all kind of makes sense. I was huh. quite vaguely, and with the help of my doctor, completely sky high during the process of writing that book. 
<laughs> and it was, and, and, and it was by far, I mean, it's, it's, it's outsold everything else I've written three to one. Mm-hmm. It, it sold very well indeed. And wow. I will have to be honest and say that drugs helped build that book. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is some truth to the idea that chemical um, uh, creativity does in some sense perhaps have some existence. That seems wow. to be the lesson I might take away from that. Mm. Wow. Okay. Well, I think, you know, the drugs do allow you to access different parts of your brain and uh, put you in a relaxed state. So I think you're not so self-conscious. I think they yeah. shut down the self-senses of that. Hmm. Mm. That makes sense. And I think that's one of our greatest enemies as creative people is the self-censorship. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Right. And it had a kind of curious genesis. Well, curious to me anyway. Um, mm. Angel Stations did okay. Um, it got some good reviews. It got some attention. And that was nice. But the, the thing about writing is nobody really ever just bursts out of the gates and is known. It takes time for people to become aware you're there. Mm-hmm. And it can take like half a dozen books before people kind of start picking on to you as someone that they might be interested in. Mm-hmm. So if somebody finds one book, then they can go to the library or they can go to the bookshop and they can say, oh, we've got those other books, I can buy them. Uh, becoming a writer in that sense is sort of a cumulative process. So back then, the first book, it was out there, but it, it wasn't like a major bestseller or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, the second book, in Against Gravity, didn't do so great, which I was disappointed by because I was very pleased with the book. But people didn't really... It didn't really gel with people. So mm-hmm. I was talking to my publisher about ideas for a third book. And um, I was throwing ideas around and sending them outlines. And they weren't really going for any of them. Um, that's maybe partly because I hadn't realized that very often publishers, as I discovered, they really want you to... for their own commercial reasons to come up with books which are very much like the ones you've already written. Mm-hmm. But the ones I was coming up with were really quite different. At the time, I didn't think they were different because I thought they're still science fiction. Therefore, they're the same. But I didn't realize that it had to be the exact same kind of science fiction in terms of subgenre for them to really be interested so, Angel Stations had been kind of a space opera. Against Gravity was more of an earthbound, almost cyberpunky kind of book in, in a relatively near future, set in a jungle. Um, it wasn't much like Angel Stations at all. So, I came up with ideas that were increasingly more like Angel Stations. That was the first book I sold them. I thought, okay, maybe they want something more like that. So, I sent them another idea. And he said, could you make it more intergalactic? And I thought, that really annoys me. Intergalactic? So I I actually got a little bit annoyed and I thought, okay, basically what they want is, I was being a bit cynical in in retrospect, but in my head I thought, okay, fine, they want space that's going pew-pew at each other. I'll give them space that's going pew-pew at each other. Up your ass. (laughs) So I went away and I, I dug up some old ideas and they became the, the root of stealing light. And, and I developed what at the time, when I started writing it, what at the time felt to me like an overly generic 
science fiction novel, but one that I thought would sell. But I kind of couldn't help putting my own spin on it, like stabbing Robert Heinlein or, or stabbing certain forms of religion uh, in, in the back as, as I went. And it became something else. And in the end, it became something I was actually really proud of. Even though I thought maybe this wasn't the kind of thing I necessarily wanted to do at first. But as it developed, and as I went on to the later books, as I wrote sequels to it, because Stephen Wright did very well, it felt like I could really do something with this that I couldn't do with other forms of writing. I guess just through doing, you actually found a new niche for yourself. In a way, I did. I just realized that when you have a certain kind of space opera setting, it's, it gives you kind of an open playing field for, for just sheer playfulness. Mm. And I kind of exploited that with the second book in that series, Nova War, where I had insect people and I had this character, Trader, and I, I just went full Baroque space mm-hmm. opera as far as I could take it. Right. Or, or so it seemed to me at the time, and I, I mm-hmm. ended up having a lot of fun doing it. Well, that's one of the nice things about formula, right? When you're playing in genre and formula, it does give you a certain sense of freedom in a way. Um, someone called it uh, creativity through limitation, I think is the term I've heard before, where by giving you a set play field, like it gives you a base basically to build on from, uh, from, wherever you're, from whatever you want to do, such as in your case, uh, just kind of go crazy with space opera and see how far you can take it. Yes. And so I assume Empire of Light is as far as you could take it? That was as far as you could manage to go? Not really. Empire of Light kind of pulled back a little bit because I'd done this whole huge widescreen kind of thing. But then Mm -hmm. I liked the idea of actually restricting things, which is why much of that novel is actually set on board a single spaceship. Right. And I just kind of increasingly had this idea in my head. I liked the notion of people trapped together in a mm-hmm. single place, trying to deal with a situation where they're either running away from something or heading towards something that's going to decide their fates. So I was taking these characters I developed over the previous books and essentially cramming them all together into this one space to see what happens. I noticed that with uh, a lot of the stuff you write, um, one of the things I've, I that, that kind of bothers me a bit about a lot of sci-fi where the authors go more for i guess um the hard sci-fi the more serious kind of material is they tend to skimp on the characters but i notice when you write you really do make the characters the the focus and somehow manage to sneak in just enough of all of the background ideas that you've got running that Mm. It makes sense, it's understandable, but it doesn't feel like some kind of classroom lesson. Yeah, I, th- I noticed that too. I think maybe over the years, I've, I've kind of identified myself as a fan of a certain kind of minimalist writing. Mm. Mm. Trying to get the points across as much as possible in the fewest possible number of words. I think if I'm influenced by anybody in that regard... It's, it's probably William Gibson, okay. because he's kind of the master of expressing an idea or an image in science fiction with the fewest imaginable number of, of, of words. And, and, but the imagery he, he comes across with in so few words is huge. Mm. So I, I, I wanted to express things as clearly and cleanly as, and simply as possible. Which... 
despite sounding simple, is very, very difficult and is a very difficult skill to have. Yeah. Well, I, I, I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite and I rewrite everything, mm. trying to get it as pared down as possible. It's not so much I'm really, really trying to pare it down. I'm just trying to write it as well as I can. And that right. tends to work out with fewer, with fewer words rather than more. Right. Well, are, do you find that your later drafts tend to be shorter than your first drafts? Yes, I do. Very much so. For exactly that reason, they've been gradually shrinking down. I, I see benefits in both writing really long books and in writing much shorter books. I've read some really great long, long books. I know Neil Stevenson, who I'm a mm-hmm. big fan of, writes really long books partly because yes. he likes to get lost in a really big book. Mm. Yeah. And he does it really well, and I like that, and I think it's great. At mm. the same time, there's no conflict, and also thinking a very short book that's maybe only 40,000 words long mm-hmm. is almost a novella, is mm-hmm. of equal value. Um, I can think of as a Cory Doctorow, wrote some mm-hmm. very short, very good novels. Yes, he did. Mm. Nick Mamatis, uh, a, a writer in California has written some very good and, again, very short novels. They are as long as they need to be. Mm. So the Angel Stations was like 135,000 words. Mm-hmm. The Stealing Light was maybe 125. And very gradually over time, the, the, the new one, Survival Game, I think that's 95,000 words. Huh. And so it's been this gradual... It's not been a constant decision. I'm not trying to beat myself with each book. It's just the way it comes out. Right. Now, have your publishers been encouraging you to write longer books? Like, I know some American publishers prefer longer books because they look better on the shelf and readers feel they're getting more value for their money. I know for a fact my agent would love it if I wrote much longer books. <laughs> mm. Because they sell and big books sell. That's a fact. That's okay. I understand that. But at right. this moment, I'm finding it hard to do... It's, I would literally be taking garbage and stuffing it in between the good words. I just don't know how to do that. There might be a way to do it. Maybe if I went back to writing more multiple viewpoint stories. Yes. Maybe that would lead to longer books. And I might well do that in the future. Um, but I haven't done it yet. Yeah. The George R. R. Martin approach. Yes. Oh. Yeah, just a couple different viewpoints can really blow the book very, very quickly. Um, okay. Although, if you're writing like 95,000 word books, you're not exactly writing short stories at this point either. So I think I think your publisher's probably okay with that. Well, I'd like to actually write a really short novel at some point. I'm hoping that I'm working on a novel just now, which is mm-hmm. probably going to come out about 90,000, maybe 95,000 words. And mm. when I've got that done and dusted, I have an idea I want to try and write and keep to maybe between forty and 50,000 words. And it's more of a personal project. I don't think right. a publisher is necessarily likely to take it on at such a short length. I will try, but I won't cry too much if they don't take it. And mm. if that happens, I might make that my first serious experiment in self-publishing. Right. So, so you're okay with the idea of self-publishing? You think that that's something that you could do? I don't have any problem with it with qualifications. Mm-hmm. The qualifications are, I see a lot of writers I admire releasing the earlier books um, online, mm-hmm. either through third parties mm-hmm. or, or, or producing them themselves. And I think that's great. 
because it, mm. it brings a lot of stuff back um, that you wouldn't otherwise get hold of. Mm-hmm. Whether it's so good for writers who don't haven't developed the skill necessary to be a good writer and haven't necessarily developed the skill to recognize their own abilities or possible lack thereof, then I'm not so mm. sure it is a good thing, which mm. is why the Kindle's been flooded with a lot of books which are unfortunately clearly somewhat substandard. Yes. I think it's great for people who have established themselves in some way professionally mm. in the past. I not so sure about the great majority of self-published books. Well, there is the uh, famous aphorism, uh, 90% of everything is crap. And um, I think that that was, oh, it was a science fiction writer who said that. Theodore Sturgeon. Uh, Sturgeon, yes, there was a Sturgeon's Law. Thank you. And um, I would say he was underestimating the internet. (laughs) 90% of everything is crap, but that was before someone invented... 4chan and the Amazon <laughs> Kindle market. Mm, exactly. We, and so, we, we were talking about um, the uh, like the Amazon eBooks and some of the strange, strange, strange places that they've gone. Mm. In fairness, although I've never read them and probably never will read them, I am mm-hmm. thankful in a small way that the universe gave us Chuck Tingle. If you're okay. aware of Chuck Tingle, uh, who, who, he, okay, let, he writes very strange gay porn novels with names like Slant in the Butt by Brexit and The Decline of the British Pounds. Oh my. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Oh. And, and, and it's very strange, very odd stuff. And in a way, I kind of strangely admire him. I don't really feel driven to actually read his books, but just knowing he's okay. out there and that he exists mm-hmm. brings a weird kind of joy to my life. <laughs> right. Well, and that is one of the great things about the ebook re- revolution. Anyone can write a book. Of course, that's also the worst thing about the <laughs> ebook revolution. Yes. Anyone can write a book. <laughs> I think there's a famous line somewhere that everyone has a book in them, and that's probably where it should stay. <laughs> Ooh, I like that one. We actually did a show, uh, the listeners will have heard by the time we, we uh, released this, but we actually did a show about why you shouldn't become a writer, where we went through all the possible reasons of why people should not become writers and why that book should stay within them. And uh, mo- it, just mostly practical reasons um, why people might want to reconsider about becoming a writer, because again, it's not an easy life. It's it's hard to be a professional writer. It's easy to be an amateur one, but being a professional one is a very difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's an interesting point. So, Gary, if you were to trying to dissuade people from becoming a writer, what would you tell them? Okay, that's interesting. Well, really, it depends on them, because. Mm. If you're a talented writer, then there's no problem. They say, just go right ahead and do it. But the weird thing about writing is, in my experience, is most people have a hard time of objectively knowing whether the stuff is any good or not. And often, in the vast number of cases, it's really very bad. Yes. Uh, and But they can't tell. About, I would say up until about maybe six years ago, I was very encouraging. Say, I would say, oh, people should write, people should go out and, and write, and it'll be good, and you can, if you're really good at it, you know, you can maybe get published. 
But then what happened was I started um, doing a little work for a manuscript agency. And what they do is, say you've written a novel, mm-hmm. you've got no idea if it's any good or not, but you'd really like to know if someone who's been published rates it or if they right. think there's anything that can be fixed about it. So you take your book, you send it to a manuscript agency, and they send it to a writer for a fee who then reads that book and then writes up a report on it of what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. That's when I changed my mind about everyone should write a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I can understand. As a teacher who teaches like essay writing and teaches writing at the local college, I can tell you that part of the reason why I asked that question, why you shouldn't write, is because I have read many students' work. And while some of them are incredibly gifted, the majority of them are not. The reason and, you should not write a book is you probably can't. <laughs> as simple as that. P- people mm. think it's, I think on some subliminal level, either people think it's easy, mm. it's just typing, right. or they don't really want to be a writer, so they want to have written. Mm. You want to be admired for having written a book and perhaps having it published. I found mm. there were certain types of writer who mm. I would receive manuscripts from. There were a certain number who had just retired. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a bucket list thing. Oh, I'm going right. to do this, I'll do that, I'll retire, I'll write a book, and then I'll buy a yacht or I'll mm-hmm. play golf in Algarve or whatever. The right. problem with saying I will write a book is the, the implication in it is that I will write a book and it will be published to modest acclaim and then I will go on to the next item on my bucket list. Mm-hmm. What they don't realize is that when you sit down to write that book, because you've got no experience of writing a book, it's almost certainly garbage. Mm-hmm. And well, the unpublishable, and that's a thought that doesn't occur to them because they have the romantic idea of writing a novel. They don't realize that it's like deciding to become an athlete. You don't think, well, I'm going to uh, work in the civil service, then I'll retire, then I'll win a gold medal at the Olympics, and then I'll go play golf in the Algarve. It makes as much sense as that. Mm. It, it misses all the practice, all the effort, all the pain. All the extreme effort in building the skills that you need to get to that point. Mm. Here's an idea, though. Um, a situation we have nowadays, which if you look back, we have had at different times, especially when you have like a, a new medium breakout. Is there value? And I'm thinking because I'm thinking of of the, the the discussion just now about like the the kinder books and the discussion i was having with rob a little while ago about dinosaur porn um is there a value to being a terrible writer but filling a niche that nobody else has ever filled it's possible but i can only think of one personal example i've encountered mm-hmm. um i became a little bit obsessed with cycling a couple mm-hmm. of years ago, and I think it's a great activity. It's like running. It's an activity which allows you to think, to, mm-hmm. to, to clear your head, which is great if you're a writer. And so I, I picked up a couple of ebooks here and there about cycling. I can't remember the name of it, but there was one self-published, which was written by somebody with no great talent for writing, but an enormous enthusiasm for cycling, and a great degree of useful knowledge in that. So. 
maybe in that sense that there's room for it, but that was non-fiction mm-hmm. in films. I can't really think of any examples beyond that, but that's the most that's the only one I can think of. Because mm. I'm kind of looking at it, um, uh, thinking back to other medium. It's like if you go back, uh, especially say North America to the the '60s. You had a lot of um, art house films, underground films, that as films, they were really terrible, but they put ideas out there that you can make a film about this that nobody had ever done before, and then people with the actual skills would look at that and go, well, it's an interesting idea, but if we did it like this, this, and this, we'd get an actual movie out of it. Maybe the difference is that with cinema, it's much more of a short, short hit. You can absorb a film in an hour and an hour and a half. A book is much more time and okay. effort to take on it. And it's much easier to get distracted from reading a bad book than it's <laughs> mm-hmm. even a bad film. Mm-hmm. A bad film That's has true. its own unique set of horror that draws you in. I can't mm. believe they just did that kind of feeling. Bad writing is basically mostly just boring writing. Mm-hmm. It's, okay. it's, it's, it almost... It's boring writing, bad writing is writing that makes you not want to read. Mm-hmm. That is its direct psychological effect. The effect of bad writing is to immediately make you stop reading. But whereas bad cinema maybe has a certain car crash quality to it that can attract <laughs> you. It's rarely boring. The good thing That's about true. bad cinema is it's not often boring. It has that going for it. That's, that's true. Well, unless you're talking about Orgy of the Dead by Ed Wood. <laughs> Have you ever seen that film, Gary? I haven't, but I'm assuming that is the porn movie he made towards the end of his career. It is. Ish. It is indeed. It, porn-ish, yeah, yeah. The kind of softcore porn. It is a movie that manages to make naked women in breasts boring. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Impressive. That's impressive. <laughs> it is. It's quite an accomplishment. It it really is sitting through it is quite an accomplishment too. But yeah, it it manages to actually make naked women dancing boring. That's that's the all that's all I'll say about it. But yeah, and there's not many things that can do that. I, I think I think bad cinema or weird cinema, or particularly weird cinema, has a genuine influence on the written words and science fiction mm. because sometimes, especially when I was younger, before the internet, um, you'd sometimes be awake at two in the morning. Or even watching something in the afternoon where no one really is going to be usually watching TV and you'll see something and you'll think, what the hell did I just watch? <laughs> mm. And that will stick in your head. But again, like mm. I say, bad writing is writing that makes you desire to stop reading immediately. Mm. Yes, that's true. You cannot comfortably make yourself deliberately read something that's bad because it is literally painful to do. It is torture and so that's why you don't work for the manuscript agency anymore right i still do and it's still Mm -hmm. a bit torturous to be honest (laughs) i found a way to do it and maintain my sanity okay is this some kind of zen thing where you just kind of put yourself you don't think about it you just let it flow and eventually it's over something like that yes that's okay that's probably or possibly with just blank spots where i I don't know, maybe I coat the walls in my own blood or something, or, 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 or mm. that would probably be more fun, actually. But um, <laughs> Probably. I, I find a way to just grip my teeth and get through it. And it's a shame because, you know, I can kind of laugh about these people writing these books, 
but they don't mm-hmm. know that the stuff isn't any good. Right. And I kind yeah. of become a bit kinder towards them. It's it's fun to kind of say just you know like kill it, kill it with fire, which often mm. you want to do. But I try mm. and be kind to them when I explain what is or isn't working. And I will ex- right. I will say depending if it's really bad, I'll say look you have a huge hill to climb here. I would never say don't write because you never mm. know. Maybe someone will go right. I'm going to do this. Um, mm. But you say, this is what you have to do. This is how much effort you have to put in. And most of the time, that's it. They'll never probably write anything again. It was a one-off thing, I suspect, in their lives. It's very rare mm-hmm. for me to ever hear anything from someone again. And maybe maybe they'll learn something. I'd tell them to write short stories instead because it would be much more satisfying. Mm. Mm. I'm very occasionally you get someone who's good. You, you may get somebody who maybe you know goes on to get published or, or you know very rarely you'll get somebody who's got some real talent but it's nice to see that especially if they don't know they've got talent that's true i mean and you can encourage them the few that do have talent into possibly going forward and keep writing yes very much so right but no i completely <laughs> agree with your advice i mean the internet is literally filled with writers saying yes anyone can write a book you just have to put words next to each other just write one word at a time and you can all write a book I believe this because I've read their books. Mm. <laughs> exactly. But I guess someone once said, any, anything that looks easy is probably really, really hard. And making things look easy is a skill in and of itself. Mm. That's absolutely what it is. The good stuff looks easy to do because the people doing it really, really know what they're doing. Yep, right. exactly. And it's all about work, not uh, being just some genius writer. I mean, occasionally there are genius writers, but for the most part, it's just hard work. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, Don, did you have any other questions you want to ask? Yeah. Uh, one thing I was I was thinking of, and it, it kind of came to mind backwards because I was reading your your blog, and you made, you said good things about a movie that very few people have said good oh. things about. Zardos. <laughs> he knew right yes. away. He knew right. I was going to say featuring Sean Connery in a diaper, but no, you knew right away. A fabulous oh. movie. A classic. <laughs> a classic movie. I mean that seriously. I think it's a great movie. Because it's it's the kind of thing I was thinking. Because um, one of the comments that somebody made about your review was that they said it was essentially a book made directly to film. Like that's what it felt like. And I thought that's about probably it. Probably why I like it. That's probably why I like it. Because what a lot of people the problem they have is they find it in indecipherable. And I thought about it because there's a lot of things that happen in it that you have to put yourself in the character's head to really understand what the scene is. And I think I, it's a, I think it's a movie that actually improves with more than one viewing. Yeah. I, I sometimes get a little bored in movies that you completely comprehend straight off in one go. I mean, there's a certain level of, professionalism in a story that's so well told it's absolutely clear from the set off but I think science fiction really should be a little bit weirder mm. I think mm. we need more weirdness in science fiction oh, a yes. little bit mm. more strangeness that reflects that kind of Saturday, Saturday afternoon late weekend early morning kind of weird cinema aesthetic and, and Zardos is a kind of it's actually quite a complex story I found I truly understood it properly when I got it on DVD 
and I watched it with the subtitles on. Oh, okay. With the subtitles on, reading along with it, it kind of helped gel it for me a little more. But I loved it on other levels. People think it, the costumes look silly. Well, I disagree. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, I, 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 at the time I saw that movie on DVD for the first time, there was some stupid show on television called, I think, Andromeda. Oh, this sort of space mm. opera television series where that guy yep. used to take Hercules or whatever. Yep. And there's a pilot, there's a pilot, 2,000 years from now, there's a pilot of a starship wearing a Hawaiian shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Fuck that. I mean, that's just <laughs> right. total lack of imagination. Mm-hmm. And while mm-hmm. I appreciate the reasons why people in, say, the rebooted Battlestar Galactica wore regular clothes, it's also right. kind of dull. Whereas if you look at something like Zardoz, at least they had the audacity to do something different. Yeah. Right. Absolutely, just like the original Battlestar Galactica, where they actually tried to make it a different society. It was supposed to be a different world. And yet, that, and that's, that's what I would agree to say is one of the flaws of the new Battlestar Galactica. It's too much our modern world. It doesn't mm-hmm. reflect another society. Yeah, They try very hard now in science fiction series to make things too like now, even when they're set maybe in, in the far future. And, mm-hmm. and I find that a little disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. Now, do you, do you think they do that because they don't know any better, or is it just straight up marketing? I think it's just a sheer lack of imagination. Mm. A genuine lack of imagination and a desire not to in any way disturb the audience's experience or present them with a story that they could have any difficulty following, even if they go out for 10 minutes to keep a popcorn. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, going again with 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 like the the Heinlein thing, it's nice to hear somebody who didn't like the new Galactica because you didn't like it for all the same reasons I did, and I think that I mean, yeah, because I think that as stuff like science fiction is breaking into movies big time and TV shows, there does seem to be a habit of sucking all the weird out of it to make it more palatable to a bigger audience. And I think that does it a real disservice. Yes, mm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll personally recommend Zardos. I don't know why people laugh at it because of um, Sean Connery's costume. I mean, what's he supposed to wear? A jumpsuit? <laughs> right. I mean, what's, where's, where's the fun in that? <laughs> well, it was the seventies, right? Jumpsuits were cool. Yeah. It's just... I mean, it's, it's a movie that starts off with a giant, flying stone head yeah. mm. yelling at a bunch of barbarians on a horseback with handlebar moustaches. Yeah. How can I mean, we not love that? Right. And it pukes assault weapons. It throws assault weapons at them out of its mouth while screaming, the gun is good, the penis is evil. Yeah, <laughs> right. I defy <laughs> anyone not to be hoots. As soon as you right. see that, you're going to sit there thinking, what the fuck am I watching? What <laughs> is this? As I did when I caught it on late night TV and my jaw hitting the ground, like, what is this? This right. is, but you're never going to think, what is this? This is so weird. I'm going to turn the TV off. Or you're going to think, what is this? This is so weird. I must know more. <laughs> oh, I, I, right. I totally agree. Like that's why, and yeah, I've got that on DVD too. I've watched it many, many times. And it's a great story. 
It's like mm-hmm. good, cohesive, solid, genuinely, perfectly rounded science fiction story. Yeah, I think a lot of people that that didn't care for her usually mm-hmm. don't get it. It's because they can't wrap their head around. Um, and and I'm going to be taking another shot at the people I work with. Um, the idea that the Eternals can't die and a lot of them are just totally zoning out because they're bored. Yes. And I, I don't, I think a lot of people are perfectly content, essentially being drones. They do their job, they come home, they relax in the weekend, watch sports, and and that's life. And it's a hard idea to to wrap your head around if you're relatively content with your life. Yes. Which idea is hard to wrap your head around? The idea that the um, the, the more that life could be boring. Yeah, that oh my god, not yeah. another day of this. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But it's partly it's part, partly in the story, of course, that they've condemned themselves to this deliberately, as it turns out, mm-hmm. mm. and that's the mistake they realize they've made, mm-hmm. and they need Zed, this outsider, in order to, without giving too much away, to solve this dilemma for them. Mm-hmm. It's, it's almost like a black comedy in a weird kind of way. Right, yeah. Plus, you, you also get to see John Connery in a wedding dress. Yeah, that's true. Right. Which you'll not okay. see anywhere else, to my knowledge. No, and he does not look happy to be in a wedding dress. <laughs> I, I bet he wasn't. I, he does not look happy about it at all, no. So, before we go, actually, so are you still writing space opera? What are you working on these days, Gary? See, there's no set pattern of what I'm going to work on next. My, my, peer, my, my, my process of what I'm going to work on next basically comes down to what idea I have had that is cool. Okay. So the current one is almost classic science fiction kind of setup. People mm-hmm. on an alien planet dealing with the environment. But oh, okay. I like to think I've had, I've taken it. It's possibly my most hardest novel yet. In the sense mm-hmm. that it doesn't involve things like um, faster than light travel or faster right. than light communications or wormholes or anything like that. It's mm. based around the idea of things which are more within the realm of a speculatively possible, mm-hmm. directly possible, within what we believe is physically possible, depending okay. on adva- some advantage in genetics and in space travel, but basically well within the laws of what's possible. Okay. So that, but that wasn't a deliberate decision. It's just this story I was trying to tell demanded that. But mm-hmm. the story I have planned for after that, the short novel, is completely different again. Hmm. Huh. Just completely at another complete tangent. And the one I have planned for after that is almost like a near-future cyberpunk thing again, which is, to be fair, not a very commercial way to think as a writer. Right, where they kind of want you to stick to a set template, but I just had a really hard time doing that. Because if I try and stick to a particular kind of story, a particular kind of setting, then I have to come up with an idea that fits that same setting. Mm. And if I don't have a good idea, the book won't be as good. Right. But if yeah. I have what I think is a fantastic idea, but it's still science fiction, but it's set in a different kind of setting, then it mm. seems immediately obvious to me that I should work in that. Wow, okay. Your publisher must love you. <laughs> but uh, as long as you get as long as they keep publishing your stuff, that's the important part. One can only hope so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And of course, 
you have developed a reputation. So worst case scenario, you can always self-publish, right? You've, you've got a fan base to work from. You can build out from there if you need to. That's something I'm exploring, and that's something I'm looking at over the next uh, year or so, yeah. Awesome. Cool. All right, so we better bring this to a close. Uh, Gary, was there anything you wanted to say before we finish? I can't really think of anything. Um, you can visit my website at garygibson.net. You can find out more about my books there. There's a bunch of information. You can even download some free stuff uh, on the front page when you visit that. And uh, there's a new book out at the beginning of August. As I say, that's a sequel to the previous one. And uh, I think that's pretty much it. So the new one that's coming out is the sequel to Extinction Game. It's a sequel to Extinction Game called Survival Game. And what's that about, just so our audience can know? Well, Extinction Game was based around the, the idea of a group of people who are each individually formerly, formerly the last man or woman on different parallel eras, who have, for reasons, been brought together in order to mm-hmm. work for a third party, uh, the nature of which is at first mysterious to them and which they attempt to find out. The mm. second book follows on from those events, survival game follows on from those events, and follows mm-hmm. uh, a spy who comes mm-hmm. from another parallel uh, who is basically attempting to infiltrate them to find mm-hmm. out more about their secrets for her own purposes. Wow, okay. Mm, sounds interesting. Okay, our, our audience should check it out, mm-hmm. and I will definitely put links to it in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Great, thank you. And to your website, of course, as well. Yeah. Don, any final thoughts or questions? Well, I'm, I am just super excited to meet somebody else who exalts the idea that putting the weird back in science fiction and uh, Gary has done an excellent job of that. Mm-hmm. All right. So um, on that note, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. If you uh, want to come and join the conversation, come to our website at ObeyTheDNA.com, or you can come check us out on Facebook at Operatives of the Department of Nerdly Affairs. Good night, everyone. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to the show. If you'd like to hear more or join the conversation, come visit us at ObeyTheDNA.com. You can also find us on iTunes or whatever fine podcast site forgot to lock their back door. So until next time, remember that to master the nerdly arts takes time, practice, and enough Coca-Cola to drop a rhino. See ya! See ya!